As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey y'all, thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Diet True Crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now, with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and True Crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of suicide by hanging, murder, untreated mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of July 1st, 2018, a neighbor of the Chundawat family in the Burari neighborhood of Delhi, India, was puzzled when he saw that their shops were still not open. The milk had been delivered to the grocery shop, but it had not been yet brought inside. Customers were waiting outside to make purchases, but none had seen the Chundawats. Concerned, the neighbor climbed the stairs to the family's home and found the main door open. He pushed through the door and into the home and saw what he thought might be a horrible nightmare. Hanging from an iron grate in the ceiling were nine bodies. Another body was hanging across the room from the others. The 11th member of the Tundawat family, the grandmother, was laying on the floor beside the bed with a belt and scarf wrapped around her neck. All 11 members of the family were dead, but nobody could understand why. Had the Tundawat family been part of a ritualistic mass suicide or were they the victims of murder? Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm -mm. 
We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences in opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome back. It's our first episode of 2023. Yeah, and we're 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 coming in hot. Starting on a a a heavy note here. Definitely. Um, we do want to give a hey girl thanks to Madison who wrote this case for us. Absolutely. Thank you. We love you. And thanks to Jackson Knight for requesting it. Yay! Thank you. So I had actually already watched on Netflix the there's a three part series on this. It's called House of Secrets: The Burari Deaths. Burari. Uh, oh, okay. And I guess we should just say we're from Tennessee. We're gonna sound like country bumpkins. We're trying. Pronunciations. No disrespect. Just we're not very cultured. Right. Yeah. Um. But it's a three part series. It was really interesting. Um, well done. So that's something you can check out if you want more information on this case, because we're obviously going to condense it into one hour. They took three hours to tell the story. I mean, there's a lot in this. Yes, but it is incredibly interesting. So if you want it, it's out there and give it a watch. Absolutely. All right. So the Chundawat family lived in the city of Delhi in India. Like many traditional Indian families, there were multiple generations living under one roof. The Chindawats had three generations living in their home, and they were described by neighbors as a really hardworking family. They never caused any trouble. Um, They were great neighbors. They were always willing to help out anybody who needed it. The family was originally from Rajasthan, a state in northern India. They moved to the city of Tahana, living there for about 10 years before they ultimately settled in Delhi in 1990. The patriarch of the family, Bapal Singh, was not a rich man, but he was financially secure. He sold his land and the cattle that he'd raised, and then he bought a home in Barari, a neighborhood in Delhi. Bapal moved there with his wife and youngest son. And eventually, most of the Chundawat family followed Bapal, who was affectionately referred to as daddy by those close to him. And so they all relocated to this house. Those who knew the family, the neighbors in particular, said that Bapal and his wife, Narayani Devi, were caring and often helped take care of the young children that lived nearby. They said that Bapal never yelled. He wasn't one to argue. Um, His eldest son said that he could communicate enough with his eyes so he didn't have to be loud. So, you know, he had that, like, dad 
<laughs> yes. Everybody knew what mm-hmm. he was saying without him saying not one word. He just was like, and they were like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Not that they were scared of him, but you know what I mean? Like parents have that way of communicating. Like you get to, you learn your parents' mannerisms to where you're like, whoa. Well, yeah. And if you get like a withering look, you're like, oh, I'm going to go to my room. Yeah. Whoopsie. I've got, I think I, uh. Have to go to sleep now. Screwed the pooch on that one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Bye. Rita, a neighbor, said that Bapal and Narayani considered her a daughter. She lived just across the street from them, and they would stay with Rita's new baby and help with feedings and changings. Um, they would put him to sleep. I mean, that's so sweet. That's a lot of work mm-hmm. to help yes. somebody with, you know, that's like really nice. Well, and they've talked about in the House of Secrets dog that all of the neighbors, they became like family. Like mm-hmm. they were all so close with one another. Yeah, because they had all relocated from other areas. So they kind of like this neighborhood was built or kind of comprised of different families whose extended families were not there, you know? So they became a family. They did meals together and holidays and celebrations and all that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Narayani always had food prepared and shared it with Rita and the other neighbors. And everybody said they were just really super kind people. And even so like when their house was being built, they would watch the workers and then they would like go and give them water and tea and like just take care of them. That is so nice. Sweet people. The eldest Chindawat son, Dinesh, said that his father used to drink alcohol and eat non-vegetarian food. And then he cooked especially good mutton dishes. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but um, Dinesh recalled that his father would always have a bottle of whiskey in his bedroom for him and his brother to drink when he visited. That's nice. That's nice. As most of the Chindawat family had moved to Delhi, Dinesh remained in Rajasthan because he had an accident in 1992 and he wasn't really able to do much for about a year. Um, his business as a building contractor was also doing well. So he stayed behind. He did not follow his father to Barari. In the mid-1990s, Bapal and Narayani's daughter, Pratiba, came to live with them along with her own daughter. Pratiba's husband, who was reportedly an alcoholic, had died, and his family was not treating her well. So the Chindawat family believed that both Pratiba and her daughter, Priyanka, would be much happier at their home. Two of Bapal and Narayana's sons owned stores in the neighborhood. Bhavnesh owned a grocery store And the lot ran a plywood shop that was just underneath the house. And both shops were doing well and had many regular customers. 
Unfortunately, in February of 2007, the Chendawat family suffered a devastating loss. So the family's patriarch, Papal, died of a respiratory illness. The family mourned him and called for a priest to perform prayers for 10 days following the death. With Papal now dead, there was a total of 11 family members living in the home. So we have Narayani, 75. She's now the head of the family. We have uh, Narayani and Papal's three children, 50-year-old Bhavnesh and his 48-year-old wife, Savita. They had three children, Nitu, 25, Manika, 23, and Dhruv, 15. There was also the youngest adult son, Lalit, 45, and his wife, Tina, 42. They had a 15-year-old son, Shivam, and 57-year-old widowed Pratiba and her daughter, 33-year-old Priyanka. So while the family was clearly in pain following the death of Bhopal, those around them said the family was doing well, you know, considering the circumstances. They continued to operate their businesses. Uh, Their neighbors were glad to see that the children were still doing well in school, and the others were doing well in their jobs and schooling. Another neighbor said that the children used to call her for nightly kirtans after Papal's death, and they'd sit together, they'd pray for about 30 minutes. The youngest family members would say that it was time for grandfather to come. Lalit, despite being the youngest of Papal's son, had assumed the role of head of the house. He was called Kaka, which meant uncle by the youngest family members. He was described as, quote, funny, reserved, responsible, authoritative all at once. Lalit's best friend, Chander Prakash Mehta, said that he was a hard worker. Lalit went to medical school but was unable to take his final exams due to illness, and he ended up having to drop out. Um, Chander said, Lalit joked a lot. He was probably the funniest in our group, but he was a no-nonsense man, and he never compromised on principles. It's kind of funny that you can be no nonsense, but also the funniest. The guy. funniest, yeah. That is a really like interesting <laughs> combination. The, yeah. I don't know. I thought you in my experience, you're one or the other, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I can see though, like now that I think about it a little bit more, like, I don't know, when it comes to the kids, like like Andrew's really fun. And you know, since we've been he's three years younger than me, so since we've been dating, I'm like, you know, he keeps me young or whatever. But with the kids, he's very no-nonsense. Like, he's the one who's going to be more like, no, we don't need to do that. And I'm like, why? Just, like, let him have fun. Let him try it. Let him, you know, like, we'll clean up the mess later. Like, whatever. But he's kind of like, and I'm less fun, I would say, but more relaxed with the kids. Like, well, I'm less, like, I'm not as likely to, like, just try new things or, like, be adventurous or whatever. Well, some people don't think that trying new things is fun, so. Well, I sure don't, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is funny though. Yeah, he's like the funniest in the group, but also no nonsense. So there's a time and a place (laughs) for being funny, right? Like, Right, yes, yes. To everyone who knew the Chindawat family, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Bapal's death derailed the family like any loved one's death would, but they were making it through. They were harmonious, educated, intelligent, and hardworking. Literally nobody could have predicted what happened next. On July 1st, 2018, Gertrude Singh went out for his regular morning walk. Lilith normally joined him for these morning walks, but that day he didn't, which was odd. But even more strange was that Lilith's shop was still not open, and he normally opened before 6, 6 a.m. But now, this is 7.30 a.m., the shop still wasn't open. The milk had been dropped off for their grocery store, but nobody had brought it inside yet. 
Concerned, Gertrude climbed the stairs of his friend's home and found the front door open. He walked inside and was greeted by a horrific scene. 10 of the 11 members of the Chundawat family were hanging from an iron grate in the ceiling, each of them with a scarf tied around their neck. They were all dead. In one of the bedrooms, Narayani, the eldest family member, was lying on the floor beside a bed, also dead. Gertrude quickly left and got his wife, unsure of what he was seeing was actually real or if he had imagined it. He went back to the house with her, and when she went into the house, his wife screamed loud enough that their adult son ran over. He grabbed a cell phone and he called the police. Around 7.35 a.m., a police officer was called to respond to the scene. He'd been a neighbor of the Chindawats in the past, so he was asked to check out the reports of multiple deaths. As he entered the stairwell that led into the home, there were multiple people rushing out, crying and screaming. As soon as the officer walked into the home, he saw nine people hanging from an iron grate in the ceiling and one hanging from the one hanging across the room. He then found the grandmother laying in the bedroom. The family's dog was tied on the roof to the same grate that the family hung from. He was barking very loudly. The officer called the head constable to inform them that they did indeed have 11 bodies. The constable, I know it is, this is unfathomable. It's just, I mean, it's hard enough to find any bodies at all, but an entire family, three generations worth of people, 11 people all dead. I mean, I know it is insane to me. It's so sad. The constable instructed instructed him to seal off the crime scene and that he was on his way. And it appeared as though all of the bodies had been blindfolded with their hands bound. Some of them also had their legs bound. There were various stools on the ground around them. Each person hung from a colorful scarf that was tied tightly on the iron grate in the ceiling. The officers were stunned. They didn't think that anyone had ever seen a crime scene like this. An entire family, three generations of, quote, high-functioning social members were dead. Police couldn't understand. If this was a mass suicide, why was everybody blindfolded? Why were they bound? And why did they have cotton balls in their ears? Nothing about this scene made sense to anybody. And I will say, watching the three-part docuseries, I was, the first part, I was like, they could not have done this to themselves. There's absolutely no way. Somebody had to be behind this, right? Like, when is, when are we going to find that out? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really mind-blowing. And they don't, they, at first I thought they were doing like a a recreation of it, like a reenactment kind of. Oh, okay. So they don't show the full bodies hanging, but you see kind of part zoomed in, like the feet, you know, and there's some, there's some uh, odd things, you know, that come out in the investigation as far as like, even just how the bodies were placed, positioned, all of those things. But yeah, but then you think about it and you're like, but how could... How many people would have to be part of this to force 11 people? You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and with everybody's hands being bound, some people had their feet bound, but with everybody's hands being bound, it's like, but how, how could they have done this themselves and gotten, I don't know. It's, it's just, I was like, there is no way. There's just no way. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So as more officers and investigators arrived on scene, the crowd of onlookers grew. The street outside of the Chindawat home was filled with people as well as the surrounding streets. And filled is, like, there's no way to accurately describe how many people, I mean, like, when the police are getting there, it's like, it's like you would see on TV where, like, uh, in some of these court cases where like somebody's trying to get into the courthouse, you know, it's a high profile case and there's just like people swarming them and there's hardly any room to breathe or walk. Like that's what these streets looked like. They were, and people were like up on the roof. Like it, it was crazy. Um, and mm-hmm. the entire police force was either so, either inside the home or outside. And they were trying to put up barricades. They're trying to block people from getting too close to the crime scene. So people started climbing up onto the roofs and, or they're like leaning out of windows. Um, they're, you know, getting on the terraces and the porches and they're filming all this with their cell phones. Like you just see tons of cell phones like in the air, just like them trying to get everything that they can. Um, every news outlet, of course, in the surrounding area was there. Everybody was there. And with all the people who'd been on scene before the police, rumors started to spread. Had the entire family been murdered? Was this a mass suicide? Was the entire family dead? The press was only able to report that there was said to be a family of 11 dead inside the home. That was until they received the video. A civilian who'd been inside the home before the police arrived thought this was a good idea to take a cell phone out and record the bodies as they hung there. I, yeah, I don't understand how that thought could even cross your mind. Yeah, I guess I would say... There have been some cases where the investigation wasn't handled well. And if if anybody else, a family member, anybody else on scene had taken photos or videos that, you know, that would be helpful, I guess. You could document the scene as it was. Um, but that's never something you're going to know beforehand. It's just, I just, I don't think that that was the motivation for this. No. Now, I don't know what the motivation was for this, but it reminds me of like the very first scene in Pretty Woman when um, Hank Azaria, cameo from that guy, he was the police officer, the detective, and he's got this dead body on the sidewalk and these like tourists from, I think they're from Nashville or something. They're like taking pictures. And yeah. Like, Get Get out out of here. here. Yeah, it's, yeah. And the video's like a little under two minutes long. It shows the 10 family members that were hanging from the ceiling. Most of them, again, blindfolded and bound. Um, There were seven women, including the grandmother who was found in the bedroom, and then there were four men. Um, But this person took this video and then put it out. Sent it to news outlets. Put it out on the internet. Um... So once this video is out and being shared to the public, things changed. The public was uncomfortable. They were upset. They didn't understand how an entire family could possibly do this to themselves. They believe that there had to be an intruder involved. 
While law enforcement did what they could to prevent riots and disperse the crowd outside the scene, there was still a massive amount of people in the streets. And listen, like we talked about how many people there were, but it was on par with like the biggest. uh, Okay, Woodstock 99, if you've watched that. I was going to say Woodstock 99. Yeah. All of the people, just massive amounts, just masses of people. That's how many people were there. Mm hmm. Yeah. The Joint Commissioner of Police made a public announcement that they were not ruling anything out just yet. They wanted to investigate from every angle because people, you know, the the media, they're like, is it a suicide? Is it a murder? What is it? And he's like, I can't tell you that right now. Like, we don't have near enough information to figure out what happened in here. Um, by 930 in the morning, all of the crime scene experts had arrived on scene and, of course, were just as stunned as the officers. Uh, the entire situation was incredibly odd, and nobody seemed to have any answers. So investigators began scouring the home from the bottom up. They took pictures of everything. With the bodies still in place, investigators marked each body with a piece of notebook paper with a number written on it, which was also really difficult to do because the way that they were hanging, they were fairly close together. And so you had to, they had a hard time with that part because you Mm -hmm. had to kind of get in between them to get pictures of some of them. I don't know if you noticed this though in the documentary they showed the the numbers that they drew and whoever drew these numbers they didn't just write like a 6. They like drew it with an outline and then put little lines on the inside of it like they they did the most for these numbers. And not to be morbid or whatever but you're trying to put a number on a hanging body. So it's 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 moving while you're doing this too which has to be so, um, what's the right word? Um, surreal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that was really interesting, um, odd, some of the people looked like, like, because you could see their feet, like, because they put the numbers down at the feet. It looked like if they had just straightened, they would have stood up, you know? Mm-hmm. Their feet are yeah. touching the ground. With with room to spare, with like their knees spare. are bent. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it's very interesting. Um, the grandmother of the family who was laying in the bedroom had a scarf and a belt around her neck, and her body was turned on its side, and she had marks on the side of her neck that looked like they matched the belt. On the dresser beside her, it appeared as though she may have been tied to the handle. Police felt that it was even stranger that an elderly woman would willingly die by suicide. Investigators noticed that there was a surveillance camera across the street from the Chindawats home. Several officers were tasked with reviewing that footage. Uh, during this time, a local animal activist arrived on scene to rescue the only witness to the deaths, and that's the family's dog. Um, this poor little dog, and they interviewed him. He was in the documentary, and he's like, you know, I'm watching the news and this dog is up on the roof and it's just barking, constantly barking. And he's like, nobody's doing anything with this dog. Like he's just there. He's on the roof. It's hot in the sun. Yeah, I was going to say, there's there's no shelter for him. There's like this tiny sliver of shade from the wall of the building next to him or something. And he's, I mean, it's not a long leash either. He's very, you know, mm-hmm. chained closely to that grate. And the guy was like, I could tell that he was he was in distress. He was upset. Like, who was gonna who's gonna get the dog? Mm-hmm. I thought that was sweet. Yeah, he even said, um, I, when I saw that, I knew I had to go get that baby. I know. 
So he went and got that doggy. And initially, you know, the dog is aggressive. Um, but obviously, he, like you said, he was in distress. Um, so they carted him away in a, um, it, it's an animal ambulance. I didn't know they had those. I know. Said so right on the van. I know. So they took him away in that. Uh, relatives arrived on scene and they had to be escorted through the huge crowds of people. Press is obviously trying to shove microphones and cameras in their faces. And they're like, when's the last time you talked to him? How do you feel? Your whole family's dead. What do you have to say about that? Like, give him a minute. My gosh. Like, they've just found out that they're an entire family. Three generations of people all related to them have just passed away. And you want to know how does that feel? Yeah. Like, give them a fucking what are, day. What are you thinking right now? How are you feeling right now? What was it like to find out your whole family is dead? And not only asking invasive questions to people that obviously are in no shape to be answering anything like that. They're like in their faces like, hey, 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 let me get, you know, like, get off. Yeah, it's just so. It's just it's insensitive. Yes. It's so and completely like disrespectful of the human condition. So Tina's brother, and Tina, remember, is one of the deceased, said that he had spoken to her on the phone the night of the incident. She called him. He said the phone call was super normal. It didn't seem like anything was off. She seemed in a regular, you know, mood, like all those things. But he also spoke to her husband, Lalit, and that was for about 15 minutes. And Lalit told him everything was great. And he said that they would talk again in the morning. Um, so that's, you know, that kind of makes you want to lean a little bit towards maybe somebody did this to them because it seemed like they didn't have any idea or emotion that something was going to happen that night, you know? Um, Tina and Lalit were described by their family members and friends as a perfect couple. Friends said that the two trusted one another fully. They had a great rapport. They always supported each other. Um... Sujata Nagpal, who was the fifth child of Bapala Narayani and one of the two surviving children, was extremely upset that the media and police seemed to be portraying the death as a mass suicide. She, along with most of the rest of the remaining family, were adamant that their family members had been victims of murder. And she publicly said that she believed the police were hiding something to protect themselves. More people joined the swarms already in Barari outside of the Chindawats home to say that police were lying. And washing their hands of the situation, which it happens. Everything that the police is saying, yeah, it, that does happen. <laughs> but everything that the police is saying in the, I feel like up until this point, all the press conferences or, you know, press statements that they made were, we can't rule anything out. We can't tell you one way or another. Like we're investigating this. So, you know, right. obviously I wasn't there, but it did seem like they were actually. Well, this seems fairly early on. Like it's not like this has been months and yeah. they're like, you know, could have put out a press release or yeah, something. Yeah, I think the press is, seemed like who was really grabbing on to this mass suicide idea. I don't... Yes. I, from the statements that you see the police make, they're not putting that out there, you know? And again, I mean, we obviously weren't there, so we don't know exactly how the press was handling it, but it did seem to, from where I was sitting, it seemed like the press were the ones that were like, I can't believe they would call it a suicide. It could be murder. You know what I mean? Like they were pushing that narrative yeah, of like, yeah. the police aren't doing enough, but I don't know if that's true or not. Like I said, it's happened before. It it, it happens when it's, we've covered cases where it's like, it, 
very clearly looks like a murder, but the police are like, no, it was suicide. Mm-hmm. So I know that it happens, but I don't feel like it's happening here yet. Yeah. At least. I don't know. Hey, you guys. Um, it's us again. Yay. It's us. We threw, we threw you for a loop on this one. <laughs> uh, so we know that a lot of you have been asking like WTF, where are episodes one through 44? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember, though, we need you to take a little caution here. We didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us. Just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so... Here are the details. You'll be able to access our, what we're calling, OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG and snag episodes one through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. Investigators still on scene were observing many different things that seemed to indicate that this had perhaps been an intentional act. There was no indication of a struggle. The ligatures tied to the iron grate appeared to be equal distance apart. So that's, I mean, that would seem to take some planning. Like everything's placed perfectly. I was literally about to say that because when they interviewed some of the police officers for the House of Secrets doc, they were like, it It would have taken, somebody would have had to be, be there for a long time planning this out because unless they just knew, but, you know, everything was so, um, it was so spread apart. I don't know. It just, it would have taken a, a lot, a lot, a lot of planning and a lot of time to make sure that everything was Perfectly executed. Um, and it looked as though Bavnesh had attempted to untie himself. Um, this is really sad. He had one hand near his throat and was like grabbing at one of the ligatures. Um, the youngest family members were completely bound. Their hands were tied tightly behind them with telephone wire. There was tape over their mouth and eyes, and they had cotton balls in their ears. The youngest boy's mouth was gagged with a handkerchief. Despite the rumors of a mass suicide, there were a lot of officers who'd been on scene who said they thought it was a murder because of the bindings and the blindfolds. Finally, investigators were ready to remove the bodies from the home to be transported for autopsies. Eleven ambulances were brought to the scene, which was no easy task, as, like we said, the streets are still completely packed with people. Like, not enough room for, like, a single person to really get through, let alone an ambulance. Like... And 11 of them. 11 of them, yeah. Each body was placed in a body bag with the ligature still intact before being transported to the medical examiner's office. The officers who had been tasked with reviewing the surveillance footage from the camera across the street went through each frame multiple times. I mean, they were very, very thorough with this. The camera covered the entire exterior of the Chindawats home. And on June 28th, which is three days before the death, there were was footage of Tina and her son, Shivam, carrying four stools to the house. And then two days later, on June 30th, Tina and Nitu were seen carrying several plastic stools that, that had been purchased at a nearby market. On that same night, at 10.29 p.m., Siobhan was seen opening the door to the family's plywood shop, and he goes in. He grabs a bundle of wires, and then he takes them upstairs to the house. 
a neighbor kid later said that he asked Shavam if he wanted to play with him when he saw him in the, with the wires, but Shavam told him, quote, not tonight. There is no evidence that anyone other than the family has entered that home. But police now feel confident that there was an intruder involved, so they began to wonder if someone within the family did this. Only two weeks prior to the deaths, the family had thrown an engagement party for Priyanka. Everyone in attendance spoke of how much fun the party was and how the family seemed so excited. Nothing indicated that there were any troubles within this family. With the bodies being examined by the medical examiner, investigators continued to pick everything apart in the house. They were looking for any clues as to what may have happened. They found what appeared to be the remains of a ritual that was done the night of the deaths. Investigators looked for any sort of suicide note, but they couldn't find one. But what they did find near the altar was a diary. They searched every room in the house multiple times looking for more diaries, and they ended up finding a total of 11 diaries, the earliest dating back to 2007. And this is after Bapal's death. The most recent entry was just before the deaths. Everything that they'd found in at the death scene was written in the diaries. It seemed as though there was an entry in the diaries for almost every day. The family would wake up. They would refer to the diary to see what they were going to do that day. Uh, the diaries gave them instructions and told them what they'd have to do to repent for their mistakes. So entries said things like, you know, so-and-so is spending too much time on their phone. They should do this to be forgiven. And there were also instructions to follow Lilith's guidance and instructions. It seemed to indicate that if the family experienced good fortune, like, you know, their business is growing or finding a husband for Priyanka, these were the results of following what the diary had instructed. Some of the entries even hinted at possible witchcraft or occult practices. And it seemed as though there was an entity apart from the people who were giving them instructions. As investigators read through the diaries, they believed that the, quote, instructions written were supposed to have been coming from Bapal after his death. Once Bapal died, Lilith's bond with him seemed to strengthen, and he took on the role as the family's patriarch, and his family saw him as mature and strong. They listened to his instructions, and his words were seen as final. Most of the diary entries in, um, in most of the entries in the diary referred to specifically Lilith. For example, like if you are all making him nervous or anxious, follow his instructions. And since just after Babal's death, Lilith had written that his father had been visiting him in his dreams. They would talk. He would share the conversations with the instructions to the rest of his family. And one of the women in the family even told a neighbor that her uncle Lilith had been possessed by her grandfather's spirit. When he was possessed, his voice would change and he sounded like his father. Whatever was written in the diaries was assumed to be instructions from Bapal. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It was initially believed that Lilith had written all of the diary, inter- diary entries, but a handwriting expert found that Priyanka and Nitu had also written in the diaries at certain points. They were all taking notes based on what Lilith had said. Other than occasional mentions of Bapal's spirit still being with them, the family didn't speak to anyone else about what they were experiencing. The control that was being held over the Chundawat family by Lilith became more and more apparent to investigators while they were reading all these diaries. Combined with stories that they were hearing from those close to the family, things began to come together and I guess you could say makes sense. Like at least like, oh, okay, this is this seems to be what happened. Yeah, I still don't get it all the way. There's a lot of questions I still have, but um, we're getting some answers. So when Lilit was in college, he had a severe bike accident, which he suffered a head injury. He was unable to complete his final exams in school, and he was hospitalized for quite some time. His friend recalled that after that accident, he would fall asleep often and even in the middle of a conversation. In March of 2004, he suffered another severe injury. This is insane. I cannot believe that this happened. So he was working for a man at a plywood business when they got into an argument about his pay. So after this dispute, he was physically assaulted. And when he lost consciousness, he was locked inside of a building and the plywood inside was set on fire. Now, thank God he had, so he he regained his consciousness and he had a cell phone with him and he called for help survived it. After the assault, Lilith became unable to speak and his family said that it was from smoke inhalation, but doctors said that there was no medical reason for this. Like nothing, the vocal cords were not damaged, but he didn't speak for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. He did not speak when his son was born. He didn't speak when his dad passed away. It was believed that Lilith was suffering from PTSD and it was recommended that he see a psychiatrist, but he never did. And this makes me really sad too because there there was a stigma that went along with admitting that you have a mental health problem and Lilith and his family did not want that. They didn't want to be seen as, um, they didn't want to be seen in that light. Yeah. How some people see it. So the entire family was shaken up by Lilith's loss of voice and his he was the family's primary earner and he lost his job. So during the 10 days of prayer after Bapal's death, one of the family's close friends said that during a prayer, Lilith began chanting suddenly and his his voice came back and the family began saying, quote, daddy has returned. That's ominous. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a little, I don't know. This, it, it makes, it gives me the heebie-jeebies in a way. Yeah, I don't think I would be like, woohoo, like, I'd be like, yeah, that's, that feels a little scary to me. Yeah. I watch a lot of horror movies. Maybe that's the problem, but it just feels kind of like, um, I don't, what? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Lilith told everyone that he had regained his voice due to, quote, daddy's blessings. Now reflecting on the deaths, friends wonder if this was the beginning of the end. Friends noticed that Lilith's behavior had changed over the few weeks prior to the deaths. At Priyanka's engagement party just two weeks before, friends recalled that he was extremely withdrawn and even ignored people when they spoke directly to him. Yeah, and remember, he's kind of the 
he's always really fun at parties. He's always really like, I mean, he's no nonsense, but he has a lot of fun. He seemed to be very social. Yeah. Like, he, he, yeah. Yeah. So that's very odd for him to ing- ignore people who are speaking directly to him. That's odd. It is out of character. And they showed a lot of footage because there were videos of them at weddings and videos of them, you know, doing all kinds of social gatherings. And he was very, very interactive. He didn't seem like he was just in a corner ignoring everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He also started sleeping all day and all night. And after the deaths, people began to speculate that Priyanka's engagement and upcoming marriage is finally what pushed him to a breaking point. Like maybe he knew that it wouldn't be too long before Priyanka left the family and that their code of silence in the family was going to be broken since she was leaving. And his psychosis had reached a level that there was no way of returning from. So the medical examiner had determined the cause of death for all of the Chindawats. All of them, except for the grandmother, were determined to have died from the hanging. Uh, The grandmother was determined to have died from a, quote, partial hanging. The instructions found in the diaries directed the family that they would need to participate in a banyan tree ritual, which would run for seven days along with the Bad Puja, a worship ritual. So the banyan tree is a tree with like really long hanging branches. And the detectives, when they first got to the house, they said they looked like a banyan tree. Like that's what the family looked like hanging there. Um, Mm -hmm. So the ritual was so that the family would hang themselves like the branches of the banyan tree. The last diary entry specified the exact instructions for the ritual. They were instructed that this was to happen at 1 a.m., which was also what the medical examiner found. The directions included nobody outside was to know anything about the ritual. Only dim light should be used during and eyes should be closed. Blindfolds should be tied across the eyes, mouths gagged by handkerchiefs, and the mind to be focused and empty. And this is believed to be why some had cotton balls in their ears, so they were not distracted. Um, Because the grandmother was older and overweight, she wouldn't be able to complete the ritual as the others, so she would complete her hanging by lying down. During the ritual, the family members should imagine the branches of the banyan tree wrapping around them. The ritual is to be performed with unity and determination. Going along with what the investigators suspected as Lalit began the driving force being the deaths, it appeared that he and his wife Tina were the last to hang themselves. The bindings around their hands were tied differently from everybody else's. Their legs were not bound, giving the indication that Lalit and Tina may have helped everyone else before they hung themselves. So with this, investigators wondered if each person made the choice to die or if some of them were forced, technically making this a murder. It was written in the diary that Grandfather Bapal would attend the ceremony. It read, quote, Keep a bowl of water outside the room. When the color of the water changes, I shall appear. After the ritual, the members should help untie each other. So it seemed as though, oh gosh, I'm I'm getting chills. Like, I know. It seemed know. like they, the family fully expected that Bapal's spirit would come to rescue them. And so the ritual mm-hmm. was intended to show their obedience and respect for their family's patriarch, not to actually end their lives. Which makes more sense as to like why 11 people would willingly engage in this because they believed 
that they would come out the other end still alive. I don't want this to be an insensitive remark. It reminds me a lot of like Heaven's Gate. Oh, uh uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Like they had no intentions at all. The people who were members of Heaven's Gate, they did not think that they were all killing themselves. They thought that they were going to be transported to paradise, basically, right? Right. This feels very, very much like that. Mm -hmm. And it is so sad because I wonder, and again, not trying to get too morbid or too whatever, but it it makes you wonder in the moment that you're like, oh my gosh, this is not... Don't you think that there's a moment where you're like, we were wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now I can't do anything about it because I'm tied and bound. And yeah. And that's why the, you know, we found one person trying to grab at the ligatures. It's so heartbreaking. It reminds me too a little bit of the Sherry Shriner cult. Yes. The girl who she like parked her car. She went (gasps) out in the woods or whatever. And she thought that she was going to be transported. She thought she was going to like enter some kind of portal and that she would come back. But she was told that by Sherry Shriner, you know, who seemingly full well knew that that's not actually what was going to happen. But, you know, I don't know. But it was it was another like act of obedience. Like, if you're really all Mm -hmm. in this, then you'll do this thing. It's just so devastating. It's so sad. It really is. Especially, it's sad no matter what, but to see or to hear about that one person was like, oh my gosh, we were wrong and actively trying and not making it in time. It is just... It's so sad. It's so sad. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Though investigators and the remaining Chindawat family had some answers, um, and, you know, they were making assumptions on some things, there's still a lot of questions left unanswered. Um, Was Lalit suffering from mental illness, possibly the PTSD from the injuries he had as a child? And then did his father's death compound those things? The joint police commissioner ultimately announced that there were no signs of foul play. The Chindawat family was finally able to be laid to rest. The 11 family members were dressed together and many friends and family attended the funeral. In a traditional Hindu funeral ceremony, there would be a priest for each person, but there weren't enough to do this. I mean, it's 11 people. Um, The family Mm. did pick one priest to perform the ceremony for the whole family. Some of the remaining family members asked to see the faces of their loved ones to say goodbye. Dinesh, the remaining son of Bapal, had to go through and perform the last rites for each of the family members lighting the fires. The bones and ashes that remained were then placed in the Ganges River. Very often in death in India, remaining family members will donate their loved one's eyes. Uh, Dinesh did this in hopes that it would keep his family alive through others. The Chindawat family deaths were ultimately ruled neither a suicide or a murder, but a tragic accident. Which, like, I think it's it's accurate. accurate. Yeah. From the investigation, it really did not seem as though anybody actually intended to die. And and that I feel like that lends itself because like when you look at it, your mind wants to say, well, which one is it? Is it a murder or is it a suicide? It has to be one or the other, right? But Mm-hmm. people talked to them on the phone the night before. And he said, you know, Lalit said, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Um, the neighborhood kids wanted to play with the boys. They said, not tonight. Right. There, nobody said goodbye well, to anybody. 
they're planning Priyanka's wedding. They're, you know, they're still planning that. Yeah. So because they spent a lot of money on the engagement party. That was two weeks before Mm -hmm. this happened. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, like your mind wants to put it in one category or the other, but it really does seem like they just really, as an entire family, had come to believe that this ritual was going to benefit them and that it was very important to do it, but they did not intend to die. And it's It's just just so so crazy that like, the death of 11 people was accidental, which, I mean, like you said, this has happened in other situations too, but it is sad. I mean, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. That they had such faith and such, I don't even, hope is not even the right word. I feel like it's, they knew that it was, you know, right. until. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, otherwise you wouldn't do that, right? Right. Yeah. And it makes me so sad too, because, I mean, the whole thing is sad. Like, don't get me wrong, but I'm just, you know, trying to process it, I guess, through pieces. But um, that the children were all... Because what I got from the the documentary was that the children had their hands and feet bound and the handkerchiefs and the blindfolds and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I'm sure that they had faith as well, but... I wonder if that's because they, the family thought that maybe they, they wouldn't yes, go through with it to it. Yeah. see it to completion. Absolutely. Um, and that, it just breaks my heart. And then, like we talked about earlier, there were a lot of them that could have stood up if they wanted to. Yeah. It seems like that, mm-hmm. you know. I Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I feel like it had just gotten to the point where by the time they would have done that, they had probably already lost consciousness or were too, you know? Sure. But yeah, but yeah I mean, they were um, determined to, mm-hmm. to do this. Yes. Because really they sad. knew that, oh, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it's just so sad. It is. Um, and then talk funny. about, because... The neighbors, they they all had family, big family, but the neighbors were family as well. And it's just the ripple effect, right? Like there's such a big hole mm-hmm. left. Yes, 100%. Yeah. By all these people. But yeah, yeah that is, that's the case. That's the case. Let us know what you guys uh, think. Have you watched the Netflix thing? Um, again, we apologize for any mispronunciations. We certainly never intend to do that, but. Absolutely. I will say this, though. Go watch the movie Loser starring Jason Biggs and Mina Suvari. Yeah. You need a... Hopefully. You need a palate cleanser. Yeah. And watching somebody who can't figure out sagging to the point that he has to buy the pants with the underwear already slightly sagging in it. Takes just guesswork out of sagging. Exactly. I mean, that'll lift your spirits. And he's wearing a Sarah McLaughlin t-shirt, which I think is great as well in that scene. So, yeah. I love that movie. Me too. But thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We love you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. Bye.
The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. Citizen, citizen, oh my God. And Brandy says that she met Torella. I found it. To steal the world's most expensive burger. Bur- mm. Pat's the definition of a bull in a china stop. Don't flatter yourself, you stupid fuck. It wouldn't have happened. Oh. He said they took him to a holding sale. <laughs> so this on screen. Uh, oh. And they had to learn how to like French bread their hair. I hope she enjoys hell. Oh, sorry. Joke's on you. It was chicken, bitch. It, but it, the, uh, <laughs> Slap my ass and butter my biscuit. I don't know. Why anybody would let her go get a fucking a, a fuck of coffee? You dumb bitch. To a performer student <laughs> who became Tara's stepmother. Mother. Wow. He was handcuffed, and he decided to go into the tishery. Tishery. <gasps> <gasps> in <laughs> sorry, which is my nail just came off. <laughs> On April twenty second, nineteen eighty four, a man named Mon. What? So the detective... Mm. Make sure the milk is flowing property from the Conway Rent-A-Prize. rent inter- Plans were for the day where they'd be searching. Like, about, oh my. The apple does not far fall from the tree. Got a little oat stuck in my throat. At one point after the... Pro- mm. At one point after the preliminary... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I didn't think it could get worse than it did. It got worse. Around 7.30, he said he herded what sound hurt. Oh, my. I think that it's just, it's a, it's. Okay, I'm trying to pay you a compliment, you dumb bitch. Yes, thank you. Oh, just injured myself moving my hand. And all of his family members tried to talk to him, but what? what mm-mm. Oof. Um, he did have ADHD. <gasps> Do you hear my stomach? No. Okay, it's literally going... Like, really bad. There, she graduated with a major in political science and a And one of them stuck out. He lived in Kakana. So, this affidavit... It's a vibe. Yep. It's a sus vibe. Mm-hmm. Mr. Jangles crawled up to the opening. Oh my god, it's a spider! Ah! <laughs> Hang on, I'm sorry. Where the fuck did it go? Oh god, I see it. Okay. Turtle, <sighs> I'm gonna die. Okay, smash it. Okay. No! Ah! Oh my god. Ouch. My apologies. Um... I could eat your ass. Quickly handed over to the South Carolina law enforcement. Dick Poot. John. Nope. Financial support to your favorite concrete. T- <laughs> she recreate. Re- Are you going to pound this anytime soon? They end up dropping the sexual assault. On March 21st, 1970. Mm-hmm. On March 21st, 1970. No! <laughs> That's disgusting. Do you know how thick that thing is? You know what they say about assuming. Yeah. 
Makes that out. It makes it mo. <laughs> Abductions and myrtles. Mur- oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I like to go by jizz too. If you ever, you know. Uh, she also worked with the Girl Scout. Sca- <laughs> Goodness gracious. Oh, I saw somebody fucking Judy chop somebody. It would it. it, it, it that's when you're supposed to say bye. I did all the work to close it. You're supposed to say bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 